My name is Peter Mallet. I'm a pediatric consultant at Children's Hospital. I'm joined with Dr. Shauna Malloy, who's a pediatric intensivist here in Children's Hospital. And we are going to talk to you about acute plasma the next 20 years. The reason why we're doing that is because asthma is a very common condition and it's encountered globally. We know that its uh, estimated prevalence is around 1 in 10 children and young people are affected with this reactive airways disease. We also know that in some cases, it can be under-recognized. It's sometimes difficult to ascertain the true clinical extent. And we know that in many cases, management can be optimized. Ultimately, the reason why it um, exists and is continually discussed on these pediatric emergency conferences is uh, a topical and important condition in any critical care conference or meeting asthma can kill. Before we talk about uh, this, we wanted to frame it around a hypothetical case to discuss these out some learning points that might be useful for your for you as a healthcare professional in the setting that you work, where whether that is primary, secondary, tertiary, or in urban or rural health healthcare setting across. So this is a 14-year-old boy who was previously well. Um, his only relevant past medical history is that he had very mild reactive airway diseases managed with uh, minimal dose inhaled corticosteroids and uh, by his primary care physician and no previous hospital admissions. Uh, however, he presented to the emergency department um, unwell for one week. Uh, further history showed that really he had a productive cough for about a day um, and had described some central chest pain, which was unusual for him. Uh, he was noted to have quite significant increased work of breathing and was hypoxic on initial triage with his saturations around 85-86%. First question, hopefully we'll try to engage you is, if you were seeing this patient in your healthcare setting, what would be on your differential diagnosis of what's going on at the moment? Inclu after reviewing uh, the, the patients, taking a history, examining, and getting a baseline chest x-ray given the presentation. And we'll allow you, hopefully you'll able to see that and engage and we'll give you 15 or 20 seconds. Again, not to be blinded by the topic um, <laughs> in terms of our discussion, but if this was objectively what you would met exactly that, what would you consider amongst your differentials and your most likely diagnosis? Because all of those are relevant differentials. What would you say is your presumptive diagnosis at this stage? So we have about 40 people registering their vote, and we can see there's generally a 50-50 split for um, people thinking community-acquired pneumonia. Some are suggesting an acute exacerbation of asthma, some saying a viral LRTI, and often many of you will be saying, well, possibly both, maybe an infective exacerbation or co-pathology. Moving on into this case, uh, the young person was uh, assessed and uh, our uh, venous access was established, and a baseline venous gas was performed with the results shown as there. And the most notable abnormalities was the, that was a significant acidosis, elevated PCO2, um, and elevated uh, deranged base excess and bicarb. The initial management included 100% uh, oxygen or 15 litre oxygen via non-rebreather mask and back-to-back -back immediate continuous uh, bronchodilator nebulizers, uh, administration of oral steroids, and broad-spectrum antimicrobials to cover the possibility of uh, infection. However, the child was noted to, again, be persistently or worsening tachycardic, uh, remained to have a significant amount of respiratory distress, and was uh, significantly hypoxic despite 15 litres. Most 
concerning for the clinicians involved in this patient's care is that there had been a clinical deterioration with regards to their GCS and it felt that clinically they were becoming more tired. What would you do at this stage if you were the responsible clinician in your healthcare setting? The options are included there. Thanks for engaging with us and we'll give you about 10 or 15 seconds to see. Again, many of you will be thinking maybe I would do all of these and that's entirely reasonable. But if you were trying to pick one first action you would do, you give some IV Magsulf, would you start other IV bronchodilator therapy, give intravenous steroids, immediately prepare for intubation, or commence some non-invasive ventilation. The vast majority of you are saying that IV magnesium sulfate you feel would be most appropriate in this setting, although there are some contributions for other options as well. In this case, given the degree of significant respiratory distress and clinical deterioration, the emergency team contacted the pediatric intensive care team and a consult, an immediate consult, was facilitated. So, Second off was the hypoxia essentially to be transferred uh, to PICU further management. Um, and was transferred to PICU um via with Pete on the um, by the Mapleson circuit. Child was compliant with this. Stats were 70 to 85 on 100 percent oxygen. So still struggling in terms of hypoxia. And in terms of overall overarching um clinical condition, most of completing sentences was not talking comfortably. So, um, was taken to PICU and intubation was prepared for. And this is just a signpost to our pre-intubation checklist, um, which can be found on pediatric emergencies. And you probably have your own uh, in each of your own institutions. Um, just outline your prep prior to, to intubation. Child was intubated. Um, it was all fairly straightforward. The view was a grade one view. Did run into some difficulties initially in terms of the initial inspiratory pressure was very high when placed on the ventilator and needed quite significant pressure when initial bagging to inflate the chest. It's very, very tight to bag as we, as we talked about. And whenever we, uh, whenever they listened to the chest, there was a mild audible wheeze. This is just a picture of an example of what was um, represented on the ventilator. So we're just going to ask you now, just in terms of that, just to freehand, just say what you see for your... Um, you're able to contribute. If you are in a district general setting or your waiting retrieval team, think if you were to see this on your ventilator, how would your team react to this? Describe what you see. Yeah, and this is free text contribution, so we'll give you um, 20 or 30 seconds to contribute. Suggestion of high pressures, prolonged expiratory phase, not fully expiring. Some useful contributions here. A few suggestions for gas trapping and high risk of pneumothorax, incompleted expiration phase. Wiggly lines is what I would see as a pediatrician. I would be needing help from my intensivist or anaesthetist but this is a useful learning for all of us. Excellent. Excellent, good contributions there, so moving on. So essentially uh, gained some stability on the ventilator um, and we got a post-intubation chest x-ray um, which showed this. Um, so just in keeping with, and think about your initial x-ray and this is the repeated x-ray, 
what would your likely diagnosis be now? This is again uh, just to reframe it now that the clinical story has evolved. So still an overarching um, percentage of people would go for a community acquired pneumonia um, with an acute exacerbation of asthma and fairly low down their empyema viral LRTI. Great. So continued management uh, with the, the mild waves, the clinician decided to give continuous NEBs then via the ventilator, back-to-back salbutamol and ipotropium, three sets back-to-back. Um, initiated IV aminophilin, so initially gave a bolus followed by an infusion, and gave repeated boluses of, I, um, of IV mag salt, which is a potent bronchodilator, and added in its uh, intravenous steroid, not of hydrocortisone. This was then the post-intubation gap once the child was intubated. So again, we're, we're seeing uh, acidosis here, respiratory acidosis with a PCO2 of 9.5. Um, lactate's okay. Nervenous saturations are good at 74%, saying, um, and this was from the central line. So how would you ventilate this patient with what was going on? You've got a tight chest, you've got high inspiratory pressures, you're finding it difficult to actually get them on. What would your strategy be? So remember, we're framing this for your consultation or advice, and you're met with this patient. Uh, for example, in a district general setting, a waiting anesthetic, or you've got anesthetic assistant, but a waiting pediatric intensivist advice. So some people are suggesting long expiratory time, low respiratory rate. Someone suggested with fear and trepidation, which is absolutely understandable. <laughs> a prolonged expiratory phase until you accept a degree of hypercapnia. Very good. So we took some of those suggestions on board and we talked through the the actual act or the what we would do in real life. Um, in the in the discussion afterwards, but we ran then further enough in this case, there was a few further difficulties in terms of a labile blood pressure. With this age of a child, we were aiming for uh, aim for was for a map of greater than 60. But currently and intermittently, the blood pressure would drift down to less than 40. And, and what your working diagnosis would be. What would you think the most likely cause of this hypotension, this intermittent hypotension, I should say, um, would be? The majority there of people saying gas trapping. So really moving on from this, uh, we wanted to spend the time to discuss uh, some intricacies around acute severe asthma recognition and the management. As we've alluded to already in our discussion, this is an extremely common condition and a potentially very severe condition. Some of these are the clinical features uh, associated with an acute, severe or life-threatening uh, uh, exacerbation of asthma. Many of you will be aware of your own local guidelines or national guidelines that recommend uh, and recommendations suggesting these, but really some of the key pertinent features that we need to consider very seriously are if children or young people are unable to talk or feed. If they are breathless, if they have significant hypoxia, or if they, as we've discussed before, have a disproportionate or very excessive tachycardia or tachycnea. The overall overarching principles of management, managing an acute uh, exacerbation of asthma is for the basics to be done well and effectively. 
So if possible to position the child in an upright position with high flow oxygen and immediately administer some bronchodilator therapy in the form of nebulized medication with suggestions as below. Moving on to steroid management, there are several different options between oral and IV. We're aware that in lots of centers and globally, some centers will prefer oral prednisolone, some centers will prefer oral dexamethasone, and there has been significant studies and research investigating this. The overarching take home would be really, it is where what you are familiar with, what you are comfortable with, and what your center promotes on an evidence-based uh, basis. Equally, if children or young people are too unwell or unable to tolerate the oral route, there are IV equivalents in the form of hydrocortisone. And following this, moving on to IV bronchodilator therapies and other agents. Again, uh, centers will vary around the world in terms of what you prefer, but as well established within our center and other centers uh, nearby that the first line management would be dose of IV magnesium sulfate, which has been proven and shown to be extremely efficacious in the management of acute wheeze. Thereafter, depending on clinical response, uh, subsequent treatment depends really again on centers and clinician preference, bearing in mind the evidence base and whether the patients can tolerate this. Uh, IV salbutamol in the form of a bolus or infusion or IV aminophilin. Again, we can discuss with our panel in due course what preferences are um, and it would be useful for you to, for, from this to go back and talk to your colleagues in terms of what your policies and guidelines are and where you currently sit in terms of your preferences. I think it's important to add in this um, also that, you know, um, uh, from a DGH level, sometimes people can be quite cautious with mag sulfate. It's brilliant bronchodilator. You know, we would, Peter, you were saying that sometimes they should use it 12 hourly. Yeah, yeah. Yep. But we would advocate for, you know, keeping levels above 1.2. We're not really letting you reach in toxic levels until, you know, above 2, 3. So, uh, really good. 10 minutes, guys. It's good. You know, ECG, IV, uh, and Aminophen should be ECG monitored. Um, and um, when you're using your salbutamol, there's evidence for a bolus. And the Guys, your volume keeps on disappearing. Um, from an intravenous point of view, 20 mics per minute. Uh, that is one to five mics per kilo per minute. Um, but 20 mics per minute would be your max. It's of around 20 kilos. After that, you're going to run into toxicity um, in terms of, you know, hypochloria, arrhythmia, lactic acidosis. So those are just things just to keep in your mind whenever you're um, prescribing these. In, uh, in, um, in terms of what you use, I suppose, um, yeah, again, depending on your actual but I think the main aim in uh, asthmatic is not to have to put in a, a tube down. So, you know, if you have uh, the means of throwing everything at, a, at a, a child in order to avoid intubation and difficult ventilation, I think that's what you should do. The also thing to consider here is a differential diagnosis. 
which is what we were kind of trying to stress in our case where, you know, it could look like a lower respiratory tract infection or it could be an infective exacerbation of asthma and it could be any of the, the actual differential diagnoses men mentioned in this um, table. So would you intubate at this stage? So at this stage for an asthmatic, I think you should be very afraid of intubation in an asthmatic, not the actual intubation process, but how you're going to ventilate them afterwards because they're notoriously difficult to ventilate. And that's all through the scales. So we want to just think about here, how do you optimize the medical knowledge? The intubation will be straightforward, but, but the actual decision to intubate shouldn't be taken lightly. And that's where non-invasive um, ventilation comes into play. Um, we have the means now in Northern Ireland to actually transfer on non-invasive ventilation. And I suppose the one most commonly used in a district general hospital would be high flow um, nasal cannulation ventilation. Um, and I do not suppose not make any criteria um, for intubation as in has lost, you know, is very drowsy, GCS is dropping, and we'll talk through the indications. I think high flow prior to intubation, or thinking about intubation, is, is a completely reasonable um, resource. Non-invasive in terms of BiPAP, there is more options for and that it will not fail, um, but I don't think probably that would be a reasonable initiative. That would probably be something that would be um, employed once you get to uh, a HDU or an intensive care um, situation. So before, before any intubation, I definitely think you should be discussing, if you're thinking along the, the realms of an asthmatic, you should definitely be discussing with a PICU consultant or, you know, another in terms of asthma would be working on hypoxia, which, you know, describes that. Um, and saturation is 90% to 100% of as we talked about, alter, altered consciousness or progressive agitation and non-compliance with what you're trying to do, and obviously in a cardiorespiratory arrest, which can well happen in these kids because they are so fragile. And you before intubation, you really need to consider all your, um, you know, all your life-saving medications because this child has a massive potential for an arrest um, during the actual intubation process. So intubation, as we said, is always a very, very high risk procedure. It should be the most experienced clinician. This is not one for, you know, first time intubation trainee. Um, Pre-oxygenate 100% I would consider some pre-intubation nebulized fibrinol, post-oxygenation bronchospasm. You have a fluid bolus, a fluid bolus ready, and 20 mils. Soft meds, including your push dose. Always use a cough tube. You don't want to mess about it. You don't need high airway pressure. You don't want to be losing pressure. Don't change from an oral to net because you've got to make sure that there's no need to the fragile space. So there are modifiers and induction. And in terms of your actual induction medications, ketamine is 
very useful as a, as a prospect in environment. Use one to two milligrams per kilo. It's got good bronchodilator qualities as well. And a lot I would avoid morphine or an acetone after a time of histamines. Um, fentanyl doesn't have a side of the risk, so some histamines release from cause and effect from that. So um, I would uh, use fentanyl. Is there an issue with my um an issue with my uh uh volume? Yeah, every now and then it's just becoming very muffled. So I don't know if one of you've got your hand on the mic or or something like that, but it becomes very muffled and hard to hear. Sorry, I is that better? Yeah. Um so talking about post minutes, management and complications, as I said. Be afraid of ventilating an asthmatic. It's really hard from experience. We ever any intensivist will, will tell you that they're not the easiest to manage. You'd be prepared to be up all night. Immediately, you know, you're going to slowly bag from access for expiration and expect per chest rise and the sats to drop. And you're going to need high pressures initially. Use your end title, use a chest x, you know, your chest x-ray to confirm your tube. Um Expect a an element of bronchospasm, and that's why you might think about using pre-intubation salbutamol to, to post-intubation bronchospasm. Um, air trapping, gas trapping that we talked about and we saw on the, the, the ventilator side. Um, you know, you have a big expanded chest, you want to allow time um, for expert expiration to avoid this. So, you know, start with a normal ventilation rate, but you may have to reduce your ventilation rate. Um, if you do have um, gas trapping, um, which you will see that your expiratory rate does not go back to the, or your expiratory flow does not go back to the baseline, take the patient, disconnect the patient, listen for a hiss and, and de manually decompress. Um, this will also, that's the reason why you have um, hypotension in, in terms of gas um, trapping. You've got this high intrathoracic pressure causing dynamic hyperinflation. So just by manually decompressing, your uh, your venous return is, is not impaired any further, uh, and your your blood pressure is um, uh, your blood pressure is restored, and that's why it's an, an intermittent hypotension. You also have issues where, you know, you may have high insensible losses. You've probably, they've breathed sick for a while. You've had reduced oral intake. All those reasons is why you may need um, some further fluid. And hypoxia, obviously, you're dealing with reactive airways. You've just intubated a child. You should always, always think about your dopes. Um, these kids are not um, any different to any other kids. You may have displaced, the tube may have been out in the right place. Maybe obstruction from secretions and pneumo equipment issue, and again the gas trapping which we talked about. So, how you want to ventilate this child is reduce your respiratory rate. Start with physiological respiratory rate, and then reduce your tidal volume, and by increase your inspiratory time. So, you know, use a parental ventilator. Only for tidal volumes around forty six mils per kilo. Uh, rate of the normal as you talked about. Start with an IV and one to two, but maybe the um excess up to one to five if if you need to. Um use physiological use the normal peep 
around four to seven, around five, six, probably. And aim for may need to go higher in, in the initial stages. Yeah. Some initial therapies, which, you know, you probably would not be using in your in DGH, but that we will to more laminar flow and lower your airway resistance. We don't have that in our institution, but it's something that you, know, you can think about mind if you have it in your um, setting. Uh, ketamine, as we talked about, has great bronchodilator effects, and you may consider that as part of your sedation regime. Bebo, um, which, you know, with the anaesthetists among uh, the audiences, you know, you may use that to gas the child down initially. And it causes, it's a good bronchodilator, but also, and causes, you know, smooth muscle relaxation, but also you have your added side effects of uh, lowers your blood pressure, so you have to be quite observant of that. Adrenaline also, there's some overlap with uh, anaphylaxis. Low doses of adrenaline would stimulate your beta Clearance, so it's something that you can talk about. And all the things you're wearing, Peter and Glasgow and about so really, this was a brief overview of a common condition uh, with potentially devastating uh, uh, effects. So some of the learning points that we'd like you to uh, take home from today is in any clinical encounter, obviously think before you leap with regards to diagnosis and initial management and the possibility or probability of co or multiple pathologies. Really to reaffirm the issue of, around lay-by blood pressures and to think in the clinical setting that hypotension obviously isn't always sepsis, as we've discussed here, and really to never underestimate asthma, which I know that many clinicians do not do. For your benefit, uh, in terms of additional reading and uh, further learning, we have science posted some resources for you. Chris and the Pediatric Emergency Team's excellent piece and podcast. We've, there's a good uh, asthma module on Don't Forget the Bubbles, and this is a signpost for the Global Initiative, Initiative for Asthma as well. So. Thanks a lot for your attention, and we're happy to discuss with the panel. Thanks very much, Shauna and Peter. Um, we're about five minutes over time. Uh, it might be worth it if there's one or two questions, taking those quickly um, before we move on. So um, I, I see in the chat there's a bit of discussion around um, IV use of magnesium sulfate versus IV or nebulized magnesium sulfate versus IV and also IV bronchodilators. Um I mean that's an ongoing sort of discussion. Um it, it shouldn't be. <laughs> nebulized magnesium doesn't work. Yeah, and I think that the, the the reason it keeps coming up as a, a discussion point I think is the BTS guidance to us 
say consider it's great to see evidence but th that was published in the basis of the magnetic trial which is 2013-2014 which showed some potential benefit but there's a really large um, trial across multi-centers and multi-center trial across a number of centers in Canada published in JAMA in 2020 which really didn't show any significant difference um, whether you got magnesium sulfate and um, nebulized or not so I think IV magnesium sulfate there is evidence for it nebulized probably doesn't do any harm but there's not a lot of evidence to say it makes any difference it is in the new APLS algorithm booklet that says consider magnesium nebulized, yeah. which I've never seen that before, which is strange. I, I, yeah, and the BTS guidance says consider it, but it's it's just the, the evidence for it is, is poor, but there is evidence for IV magnesium sulfate. Peter's got his hand up. Yeah, I'm driving, so I don't know if you can hear me, can you? Yes, yeah, I still hear you. I mean, this is a topic that I could talk about for hours. Okay, so this is not something that will be covered in a, you know, half hour talk. It's a whole day in itself. And the pitfalls are many and they are mighty. But to be clear, a child arriving in ICU, unless they've got fixed dilated pupils with asthma, their mortality rate should be pretty low. And I mean, like less than 1%, 0.3, something like that. So, you know, Asthma needs to be managed well when it gets to the ICU. And there are certain things that there is evidence for and there are certain things that there are not. And some of the evidence dates as far back as the 1800s. It's not even recent evidence because it doesn't need to be. Um, and we don't need to reinvent the wheel. So, you know, when we talk about these patients who are hemodynamically unstable because they're gas trapped and there's no blood, you know, getting in in terms of venous return. The minute you decide to apply pressure on their chest and totally occlude their IBC, you might just cause a cardiac arrest in your attempt to help. So I would be very clear that I do not ever support um, manual decompression. However, the caveat, if you want to sell it to me, asthma is very clear in terms of the triad of pathophysiology and not one person is really often talking about the mucus plugs that form. And I've already talked in my talk about the role of DNAs these patients should get aggressive physio. So aggressive physio will cause the same physiological response as a manual decompression, but you're doing it for the correct reasons to address the, path, to address the pathophysiology. So be cautious in following guidelines without thinking about the implications physiologically on your patients. Um, and do not forget mucus plugs. Now, magnesium has got mucolytic properties, so I can support it. But don't forget about the other things as, that, that go alongside it. And if you poison patients with IV salbutamol, be, care, be careful. But I could talk about this for hours. Thanks, Peter. Yeah, the, 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 to piggyback to what Pete said, there's absolutely no need to give IV salbutamol when you already saturated every single beta receptor, which are finite, and this is, again, evidence-based, with nebulized salbutamol. You're just giving the same drug twice, doesn't make any difference. So in terms of pharmacological benefit, for me, I mean, I feel it makes a lot more sense. In We have better ways in monitoring aminophilin levels now than when we used to see aminophilin toxicity 15, 20 years ago with seizures and all sorts of stuff. So old school um, pediatricians I hate this stuff because um, it used to cause seizures and lots of side effects and cardiotoxicity. Not anymore because we're much more hot, uh, not just in tertiary places, but DGHs in checking for aminophilin levels. 
So pharmacologically, it makes a lot more sense. And the forgotten bronchodilator is obviously adrenaline, which they rely on a lot more in, on mainland Europe than in the UK and Australasia. But it can really work wonders when you're stuck on a downward spiral. So a crude dose of adrenaline is well worth trying if you're not winning. Yeah, I would have to say I agree with certainly some of what's been said uh, about IV solubitable. To me, it does make sense to start with magnesium and aminophilin because you've already got solubitable in the system and you're going with a different drug. But I think we've all seen patients turn around and avoid intubation by starting IV salbutamol. So it, it definitely does have a place. It's in all the algorithms. But for me, I, I agree with what the guys are saying. It would be the third choice and just be careful with the dose. You're not going with big doses. And I generally then would stop the inhaled treatment and run the IV stuff. Um, manual decompression, what Peter said, there's, there's no evidence for it because no one's ever going to run a randomized control trial over disconnection and leaving the patient versus manually decompressing the chest. I've done it lots of times and you get a, an instant result and no one's ever arrested during it, um, but it is a theoretical risk and there's no evidence one way or the other, whether it's a, the right or wrong thing to do, but whatever you must do, if you've got a Christian asthmatic who's on a ventilator, the first thing you do is disconnect them from the ventilator, plus or minus manual decompression of the chest. And I would say in a DGH, you know, yes, your chest vaso and your DNAs, you know, if you're in an ICU, uh, situation but in a DGH you'd be quite cavalier to start you know as opposed to a manual decompression to start DNAs and chest chest vaso while you're prepared to transfer the patient so um, yeah I agree I agree Shauna I, I would not support DNAs and stuff uh, DNAs in a in a district general absolutely agree I'm very specifically talking about um, ICU okay. management in terms of we should have a low mortality um, yeah. and I I try my best not to talk about DGH management because they should follow the guidelines that are out there um, rather than an ICU way of addressing asthma. Um, the point is more to think about all points of the pathophysiology, but I, I totally agree with you. I, I have never never advised somebody to use DNAs in a, in a district channel, only ever direct installation via bronchoscopy actually in an ICU. Yeah, so I agree. I think the, the, the caution with physio is that while you're doing it, I, I've seen patients nearly arrest from air trapping uh, during it. So if, if I, the physios are coming to treat a patient in the ICU, I'm standing at the bed. And in fact, I'm doing the bagging for them while they're doing the treatment. Um, but it's it's absolutely massive what Peter says about going after the, the mucus production and the plugging, because everything that we do in asthma, we get distracted with the bronchospasm. And that might not be the whole cause. So you have to go after everything in these sick patients. Yeah, and just bear in mind that, you know, the autopsy studies from the 1800s show that these people that die of asthma, their airways are just absolutely full of, of plugs. So, you know, it's, it's, I don't know why it's the forgotten part of a triad of pathophysiology, but for some reason it is.